Welcome to TP Talks, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing podcast series, where we focus on key transfer pricing developments around the world. I'm David Ernick, your host for today. I'm a transfer pricing principal in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice. Joining today's podcast, I'm pleased to welcome Christina Novak, who is a principal in our Washington National Tax Services practice. Christina is currently based in Dallas and joined us recently after having spent three years as an attorney in the Associate Chief Counsel International's office at the Internal Revenue Service in Branch 6. And Branch 6, as everyone knows, is the branch dealing with transfer pricing issues. I'm also happy to welcome Andy Kim, who is also a principal in our Washington National Tax Services practice. Thank you both for joining me today. In today's episode, we will have a discussion about U.S. transfer pricing controversy, a rather hot topic lately. So let's get started, and let me begin by giving a quick summary of where we are currently and how we got here. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, multinationals were already facing a challenging tax environment. It's clear now that the impact of the pandemic will further heighten this challenging environment resulting in a substantial increase in the number and size of tax audits around the world. In this context, it's clear that transfer pricing will remain an increased focus by tax administrations. In the wake of the pandemic, the OECD, along with the European Commission and individual countries in Europe, are continuing to propose new policies for taxing the so-called digital economy with the goal of better aligning taxable income with value creation. The OECD is trying to find a solution soon, given that unilateral measures to tax the digital economy will increase the risk of double taxation and transfer pricing controversies. Pillar one of the digital economy project proposes a new formulary allocation mechanism that partially departs from the arm's length principle that we've had so long and also creates a new taxing right not based on physical presence. Pillar two features both an income inclusion rule, a minimum tax, and denial of deductions for so-called base eroding payments. One area of concern for many MEs right now is how to ensure the resolution of disputes between countries and companies with respect to how much tax is owed in a jurisdiction under these developing new rules, which are fundamentally different from the existing standards. Additionally, many are concerned about the possibility of a trade war due to unrest with respect to digital taxes. The concern here is that trading partners are adopting tax schemes designed to unfairly target U.S.-based companies, and the U.S. has indicated that it will prepare to take action to defend U.S. businesses against discriminatory treatment. There is a concern that retaliatory tariffs could put further stresses on a global economy that's already facing a profound downturn and has not yet fully recovered from the pandemic. And of course, on top of all that, we've had significant international tax litigation, the litigation of non-US cases, which are too numerous for me to mention here. And we've also had the high profile state aid investigations of transfer pricing arrangements by the European Commission. So that's just a very, very high level summary, but keeping all those developments in mind, I think it's fair to say that with respect to U.S. transfer pricing controversy, it's been a fairly turbulent environment already. 
So let's begin our discussion right out of the gate with one of the biggest developments which may have significant implications for transfer pricing controversies. The IRS recently received $80 billion in additional funding to be distributed over the next 10 years with the recent passing of the Inflation Reduction Act. The funding increase is allocated into several different buckets with some for operation support, some for business systems modernization, and some for taxpayer services. But over $45 billion of that is targeted specifically for enforcement. The bill states that those appropriated funds are to remain available until September 30th, 2031, and no use of those funds is intended to increase taxes on any taxpayer with taxable income below $400,000. And I would note for comparison, when thinking about the magnitude of that budget increase, that for fiscal year 2021, the IRS's annual budget was approximately $12 billion. So $80 billion is a big number, of course. That's a large budget increase for the IRS, and of course leads to questions about what the impact will be and what will change going forward. With respect to our topic for today, from your perspective, what does this boost in funding mean from a transfer pricing controversy perspective, and what changes can we expect to see over the coming years? Let's start with Andy. Thanks, David. Well, I guess where I would start is, you know, even prior to the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act with its significant additional funding of the service, I think we've all been expecting increased level of audit activity by taxing authorities specifically focusing on cross-border transactions and transfer pricing, which we're now beginning to see in practice. You know, with governments needing to fund the various COVID and other economic-related relief packages and programs, you know, everyone's looking to increase their share of the global tax pie, making transfer pricing a key focus for tax audits. And, you know, in this regard, on the U.S. front, um, earlier this summer, Jennifer Best, who is the director of the IRS's Treaty and Transfer Pricing Operations, announced that the IRS is actually aiming to expand its audit coverage of transfer pricing issues, which includes both auditing more taxpayers and also potentially working more issues for those taxpayers that are under audit by the IRS. And this new approach is being driven by work carried out by a centralized TP risk assessment team within the service, which is using data analytics to perform more centralized risk assessments to identify those taxpayers and tax returns that are more ripe potentially for a transfer pricing audit. I think there's also a couple other things we can point to, I guess, to see um, that there's going to be an increase in transfer pricing controversy. And I think one of those is the IRS has been on a winning streak. There's been several recent wins in tax court and in other cases. Um, and I think that's going to encourage them to continue both auditing and litigating in the transfer pricing space. And the other piece of evidence is the IRS's priority guidance plan. Every year, the Treasury Department and the IRS, they put together this priority guidance plan where they identify and prioritize certain tax issues that should be addressed through either regulations or other administrative guidance. And although this is aimed at administrative guidance, it's often indicative of areas that the IRS is focusing its enforcement efforts. And so when you look at the most recent um, priority guidance plan, there's several different regulatory projects in the works under Section 482. 
And so I think those are a couple other reasons that we can expect that transfer pricing, it's going to be a continued focus of the IRS's enforcement efforts. And I, I guess, David, going back to your original question um, regarding the, the actual effect of the, the additional funding of the service, I think what we're hearing or seeing is that, you know, it's all going to depend on how quickly the IRS can ramp up in terms of additional hiring and training of new IRS agents. Uh, as we understand it, the IRS is actively looking to hire additional economists and tax law specialists. But like other sectors of the global economy, I think the IRS is not immune to uh, challenges dealing with labor shortages and finding skilled um, individuals to fill those additional spots. Okay, excellent summaries. And I think that was important how you mentioned, Christina, the IRS has won several important transfer pricing cases recently. Even before the Inflation Reduction Act, they were looking to expand their audit coverage of transfer pricing issues. And now they've got a lot more funding to do so. So with respect to that current litigation, the, the, the recent cases that you mentioned, Christina, We've seen several noteworthy cases decided by the courts on key issues, primarily around intangibles and cost-sharing arrangements. So my question now is, do you see any trends or themes in those recent cases? I do, yes, David. I think one of them is around the selection of the methodology and specifically using a comparable or a cut methodology versus a profits-based approach like a CPM. We know that the IRS has for many years used this contract manufacturing theory for a foreign licensee as its litigating position in many different transfer pricing cases. Under this position, the IRS argues that your foreign affiliate is a routine manufacturer and it's only entitled to routine returns with all the residual going back to the United States. And oftentimes this argument, it gets rejected by the courts. But what we're starting to see is the IRS is starting to make some real inwards here and using a CPM for this fact pattern. Um, we've seen that now with two different cases. They lost on this in a recent case, but I do think that overall the IRS is starting to gain some momentum and persuading courts that a profits-based methodology like the CPM, it can be an appropriate transfer pricing methodology in certain cases, depending on the facts of the case. Um, I think another aspect of this that these cases show is that there seems to be this perception, whether it's by courts or taxpayers or tax practitioners that the CPM is just an inherently inferior method for valuing IP. And I think what these recent cases are showing is that it's actually on a level playing field with all of the other methodologies, just like the regulations tell us that it is. And again, in some cases, it is going to be the best method to value IP. And with respect to the cut method, or using a direct comparable to price a transaction, I think we're going to see more courts more closely scrutinizing the use of comparables or cuts. Um, in one of the recent cases, we saw the court sort of walk through each of the comparability factors that are laid out in the regulations. And maybe that's, you know, indicative of what we're going to see in the future, where courts really hone in on this and apply this methodical analysis in future cases. And so 
I would just caution that if you're using a cut or if you're using a comparable, that it's prudent to thoroughly examine all of the comparability adjustments that are in the regulations, particularly those requirements around profit potential and making sure that your profit potential of your comparable is in line with that of the IP that's being licensed in your situation. Yeah, I think an additional theme that might be worth noting here, which I think relates to uh, what Christina was describing in terms of the IRS, uh, oftentimes applying to the CPM uh, as the best method or purported best method in a, let's say, an outbound licensing transaction, is this theme of whether the IRS and the courts will respect the specific kind of allocation of contractual risk uh, between the parties. Now, I think in the post-BEPS environment, we've seen uh, across the board a heightened awareness or focus on substance. You know, we obviously have the DEMPI principles under the OECD guidelines, but there are similar concepts also embedded in the 42 regulations as well. And in, the, in these recent cases, as well as IRS audits that we've been seeing with taxpayers, we're seeing the service more readily challenge uh, the purported contractual allocation or risk, either on grounds of, let's say, the foreign licensee perhaps not having the financial capacity to bear such risk, or perhaps not playing a role in the management of such risk, specifically looking to whether the taxpayers exercise managerial or operational control of the relevant business activities. So I think that's an important theme that's kind of underlying much of this is, you know, do taxpayers have the requisite substance to support and align with their stated TP policies and structures. Okay, so that was a very good summary of all the factors that might lead to an increase in transfer pricing controversies going forward. Knowing that we can expect to see such an increase in, in audit activity, potential litigation going forward, what steps would you recommend taxpayers take now to mitigate any potential risks? Well, David, I would say that first step is still you know, do, are the taxpayers' agreements and TP documentation in order? I mean, that is the starting place for a, an IRS transfer pricing audit, is for the IRS to issue an IDR asking for the relevant TP documentation and the principal agreements. And so that that is still the starting place. And so making sure that taxpayers have in place the requisite agreements and appropriate supporting documentation and analysis is a critical first step. But beyond that, and I think one of the lessons taken away from the recent cases is that the taxpayer's business activities and day-to-day -day conduct need to align with the allocations of risk and TP documentation and policies that are in place. And so making sure there is that syncing up of both the substance and the contracts and the TP documentation, I think will all be important steps to mitigate these types of risks. And another way to mitigate risk are advanced pricing agreements or APAs. They're actually one of the few opportunities that are available for taxpayers who are seeking certainty around their transfer pricing. And it gives you this opportunity to have a dialogue in advance with the taxing authority instead of only when you have a live controversy and at the end of the process. It's a way that you can be more proactive about your transfer pricing. And a recent case also helpfully confirmed the binding contractual nature of these agreements. And so I think it's definitely worth considering. Thank you. Yes. And just to follow up on one of the things you mentioned, Andy, with respect to documentation, 
So let's also keep in mind too, there have been several recent pronouncements by the IRS indicating additional scrutiny of documentation. And of course we do the documentation both to ensure compliance with the arm's length principle and also to avoid penalties in the event of a transfer pricing adjustment by the IRS. But just having documentation isn't enough, right? So the IRS has stressed that the documentation must be robust in order to avoid penalties, supported by a comprehensive functional and economic analysis. And the IRS has indicated they'll seek to apply penalties more frequently. And of course, as you mentioned, Andy, always important that the facts on the ground align with the facts as described in the documentation. But one point you mentioned, Christina, with respect to developments in the ATMA space, the Advanced Pricing and Mutual Agreement Procedure Program, um, one of the best ways to obtain certainty in advance is through obtaining an advanced pricing agreement and a key way to resolve transfer pricing controversies involving treaty partners is through use of the mutual agreement procedure. So what are the recent developments there, Christina, and especially any, any highlights from your perspective from the recent APA annual report? Yes, thanks, David. So yeah, every year, ATMA, they publish this annual report on APAs, and it sort of describes the experience, the structure, and all the activities of the APA program. And the most recent annual report was issued in March of this year, and it describes all of ATMA's activities during calendar year 2021. And just to go, I guess, to touch upon a few highlights from that report, there were 145 total APA applications that were filed in 2021. Most of those, the majority of them were bilateral APAs. So 121 of them were bilateral APAs, 16 unilateral and then eight multilateral. But this number of APA filings that increased um, in 2021 compared to the prior two years. The total number of executed APAs in 2021 was 124. And again, most of them were bilateral. So it was almost 80% of them or 98 were bilateral APAs. And for comparison purposes, this is right in line with prior year results. Um, with respect to executed APAs, Japan continues to dominate the executed bilateral APAs. Um, in 2021, they accounted for approximately 40% of all executed bilateral APAs. And this was, I guess, a little less than the prior two years. It was 52% in 2020 and 49% in 2019. And after Japan, Germany, and Canada accounted for the most executed bilateral APAs. In terms of bilateral APA applications that were filed, um, the dominant country again was Japan. And then after Japan, India accounted for 16%, followed by Canada at 10%. A lot of questions people ask is, well, how long does it take to get an APA? And the median processing time to complete a new bilateral APA was 49.2 months. And as a comparison, in 2020, it was 43.7 months. So there's been a slight increase in how long it will take to process a new bilateral APA. And just a couple more, I guess just one more um, takeaway. One of the things I've always found interesting is that despite the slow acceptance by U.S. courts of the CPM, 
the CPM or the TNMM tends to dominate in terms of being the primary transfer pricing methodology that's used in APAs. And this is consistent with the 30-year history of the APA program. So in 2021, 85% of APAs involving transfers of tangible or intangible property, they apply the CPM or the TNMM, which is right in line with last year. The year before was 84%. And similarly, 90% of services transactions also use the CPM or the TNMM, which was compared to 85% the year before. So a slight increase for that. You know, as as noted by Christina, going the route of seeking for an APA, some type of advanced pricing agreement, could be very useful uh, to forestall or manage potential TP controversy in the future. But it's precisely because we're seeing this kind of increased focus by taxing authorities around the world uh, looking to analyze and potentially make adjustments in the area of transfer pricing that, you know, one of the challenges we're seeing in certain APA cases is trying to coordinate or manage a local TP audit where there is an APA that's being sought for the relevant issue or, or years in question. And so one of the things that, you know, I think it's important for taxpayers to keep in mind is, you know, not all jurisdictions have the same kind of coordination of rules between the local tax audit function and our local ATMA equivalent for that that particular jurisdiction. And so, you know, working closely with uh, both ATMA as well as, you know, counterparts in the foreign jurisdiction will be important to try to do our best to manage um, you know, local tax audits that might potentially conflict or create some complexity in terms of how you deal with a particular issue that may be uh, on, under a local tax audit, but at the same time, the taxpayer would like to seek uh, an APA resolution. So th- there are definitely strategies that can be um, undertaken to address those type of situations, but it's going to take a level of coordination, uh, both with the competent authorities as well as your foreign counterparts in the other jurisdiction. Excellent. Thank you both for those comments, Andy and Christina. So as we approach the end of our podcast, let me summarize a few key takeaways that I took from your comments today. So we started out by noting that the IRS has had some significant wins in important transfer pricing cases recently. They have telegraphed that they would like to have an increased focus on audits and examination of transfer pricing issues. And now, because of the additional funding from the Inflation Reduction Act, they've really got the ability to to ramp up that initiative. Christina, you you focused on some of the key themes from those cases, including our traditional focus on the, the best method analysis, noting that the CPM or comparable profit method, it really is on a level playing field ab initio with the other transfer pricing methods and that there will be more scrutiny on comparable uncontrolled transactions going forward. Andy, you highlighted the challenges to the contractual allocations of risk and the ongoing focus on substance in a taxpayer's arrangements. I think that's only going to get more important in the future. And we came back towards the end to the focus on documentation, which has been there all along. I think we've always noted that, but Given the increased focus on transfer pricing issues, I I think, and some of the recent IRS pronouncements only highlight the importance of continuing to focus on documentation, making sure we get the functional and economic analysis correct, and that we've got robust documentation to support our transactions. 
and that what's in the documentation matches the facts on the ground. And then in terms of dealing with existing controversies, I, I thought that was an excellent summary, Christina, of ATMA and the, the recent highlights from the APA annual report. And I think the takeaway for me there is that even though it might take a bit of time to complete an APA, the investment seems well worth the, the, the time, um, given the certainty that you can get. And the APA program is still strong. They're still completing a, a large number of advanced pricing agreements every year. One thing that I would point out when we're thinking about the future of transfer pricing controversy, those are all important issues that we've discussed, but we've completely left aside intentionally for purposes of the discussion on the podcast today, any of the implication of the OECD's BEPS 2.0 project on digitalization of the economy, particularly with respect to pillar one, which would layer on a unique new system of formulary apportionment, not in place of, but on top of the arm's length standard for allocating income among jurisdictions. I know there's a lot of concern currently that implementation of such a new transfer pricing regime would greatly increase the level of transfer pricing controversies and that innovative new dispute resolution mechanisms would need to be widely implemented in response. So I think I would close by saying that transfer pricing issues will continue to be subject to close review by tax administrations throughout the world. And it's of critical importance that MEs develop strategies to prevent and resolve transfer pricing audits, both at the local country level and on a global scale. So with that, I wanna thank Christina and Andy for joining me today. Please stay tuned for part two on transfer pricing controversy, where we will focus on the EU and the UK in our next podcast. Thanks again for listening and have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.